the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to Soft Talk Radio. I'm Neil Bradley, together with co-host Joe Quinn. We're joined this week by Soft Editor Juliana Barambuem. On today's show, we're interviewing a very special guest, author and historian, Laura Nijajic. Laura is a seventh-generation Floridian whose roots in the U.S. go back to before the Revolution. Because of her lifelong interest in science and spirit, she began what has become to be known as the Cassiopeian Experiment in 1994, an experiment in superluminal communication. Thus far, she has written 13 books which combine science and mysticism. Although her own story forms part of the material in her eight-volume series, The Wave, Laura has also written a separate biography called Amazing Grace, a book on 9-11, 9-11, The Ultimate Truth, and a book on JFK, JFK, The Assassination of America. Laura has also written hundreds of articles about everything from esotericism to so-called climate change, and which are published both online and in print. Together with her husband, physicist-mathematician Arkadzi Jadzik, Laura established an active online forum and several websites as a result of this experiment, news and commentary websites Sotnet, Cassiopeia.org, and PaleoChristianity.org. Together with other researchers, Laura created the Eruolus Stress Reduction and Rejuvenation Program, She's also the founder of the Fellowship of the Cosmic Mind, Church of Revived Paleo-Christianity. Laura was one of the earliest voices to expose 9-11 as a false flag event and was probably the first to call attention to psychopathy in politics. Having said all that, I'm afraid that my introduction barely scrapes the surface of this talents, interests, and accomplishments of this woman. So without further ado, welcome Laura. Thank you for that, Neil. Yeah, that was... Um, did you realize you'd done so much just the way it's summed up there? It's, uh, I'm exhausted just yeah. listening to the list. <laughs> it's bringing back uh, all all the memories of, of having gone through all of that and the whole process, which kind of leads me into a, a first question, was um, just looking back on your life and back to where kind of it all began, as you've said in some of your books, you know, if you've been doing this kind of thing for maybe 40, 40 years now or more. And um, when you look back on that, have you ever thought about um, what it was in you? Uh, because, you know, you're kind of rather unique when you take the average person in the street type of thing in terms of what you've done and the, the vast array of uh, topics that you've researched and, and published on. So what was it? that started you off from the very beginning on the course that you have led throughout your life? I think it's something that's uh, common enough to many people, and that is to uh, find out 
what being alive is about, what reality is about, why are we here, what are we supposed to do, is there is there ultimately any meaning to our existence? And uh, So the meaning of life. Yeah, just... But there's a lot of answers on offer for a lot of people, and that's why maybe a lot of people don't do the kind of things you did. Well, those answers weren't very satisfying, and when you... There's something that goes with wanting to know the meaning of life. It's not just um, wanting somebody to give me an answer. It's I really wanted to know, and I wanted to know the truth. And I would hear an answer, say, for example, uh, what was taught to me as I was growing up in uh, the religious training in my house. Um, It was, is this the truth? So I wanted to know everything about it, and the more I explored it, the more I realized it couldn't possibly be the truth because it it just didn't make sense. It was illogical. It was it, uh, and it didn't answer all of the many questions that occurred to me as I observed what happened to other people in the world around me, in my family, my friends, uh, uh, reading the news or hearing the news or knowing about different situations, and and there were a number of situations in my own family history that were rather tragic and these answers didn't satisfy. So. Well, I suppose that's what you're saying then is that there was a desire to understand which you suggest a lot of people have to understand the nature of, you know, the meaning of life, but you didn't, you tended not to want to accept the first answer that came along, at least not without investigating it. And when you investigated it, you found that uh, it was lacking. Well, it wasn't just that I tended not to want to accept it. It was that the answer didn't answer the question. Mm -hmm. I mean, you ask a question, you expect a reasonable answer, and uh, the answers that were given didn't answer the question. I was was the proverbial kid that, oh, you know, why is the sky blue? Well, because of this. Well, why is that? And then you keep going and going and going uh, until... uh, you know, the the parent would say, oh, for God's sakes, would you go play in the sandbox or something? And, uh, you know, I just never got over that because I just keep asking, well, why did that happen? And uh, what caused that? And, and you keep grabbing threads and you keep pulling on them and pulling on them and pulling on them. And it's, it's just, it's been an incredible journey. It really has. Mm-hmm. Well, I would... I would still maintain then, based on your answer, that uh, that approach isn't the the average approach that most people take to to finding answers. People may all have questions um, as as a part of being a human being uh, as to what the meaning of life is, but most people tend to, based on the state of the world today, most people don't really push it very far in terms of investigation. So there's something else, but let's just say we don't know what it is. It's something ineffable. Well... Yeah, and I guess that uh, my particular character, my nature, um, adds to the mix. I, uh, like I said, things have to be logical; they have to make sense. Um, and I'm, I'm really kind of very, very stubborn. And if something doesn't make sense, I want to know why it doesn't make sense. And I'm a little ruthless with myself because. Um, if if I come across something that really upsets me, but it does make sense, and this was something that you know I went through years ago, because it, it was it was um, 
was difficult to transition out of a, a very strong religious background uh, to where I am today. But, you know, there, there's, a, there's even an answer for why Bob Altemeyer uh, wrote a book on amazing conversions about why some people convert to religion and why some people convert out of it. And he did some uh, scientific studies on it. And really, I pretty much fit the profile of the person who converts out of religion. It's somebody... You, you, you get... You get uh, conditioned from your childhood to the idea that there is truth and that truth is very valuable. That's the first thing mm-hmm. that, that happens. And you, there's something in you that, that responds to that and says, yes, yes, I can see that because that is logical. The truth is important and it's valuable and it's a, it's a goal to be sought and then you turn around and you apply that principle to the beliefs that you're being taught in religious terms, and then you say, but wait a minute, you know, this part of that religion that says truth is important, you know, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, that's a good thing, but the rest doesn't, I mean, the story that goes with that, you know, cannot possibly be true. Mm -hmm. So it's like for many people... Uh, being brought up in a religious background, uh, programs into them or inculcates into them certain principles that uh, that take, and then they then that becomes their foundational principle in respect of everything, literally everything, including the religion that puts that into them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's it's kind of a trap in a certain sense. Yeah, so religion is. A- but it, but it's a, it's a useful thing because in a certain sense you could say that Christianity has in it a sneaky little program that works on certain kinds of people and I you know there I'm not, I'm not the only one who thinks that way or feels that way about the religion you know I'm not the only person who has looked at it and you know who has grown up and said you know yes truth is valuable and then turned around and says but this religion can't be true in the in the sense that they're uh, promulgating it, so I don't think that that's particularly extraordinary. I mean, Altemeyer found plenty of people who went through a similar process, and nearly all of them went through it rather painfully and protractedly. It took time, it took effort, and you know, it, but they were all, I mean, truth even to yourself, being honest even with yourself. I can't believe that. I can't believe that is what you say. And then you say, but, you know, when you give it up, then you also give up a whole lot of the familiarity of your life growing up and things that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like fellowship with with family members who refuse to give it up and who think that you are the black sheep of the family or you're a heretical mm. or, or something along that line. I mean, I used to say some really off-the-wall things about religion when I was uh, a kid, and my grandmother would call me a little heathen. <laughs> and uh, She was know. teasing you. Well, she was, in a sense, teasing me, but, uh, you know, I can still hear her voice, you know, saying, Oh, Laura, you don't really mean that, do you? And, yeah, I did, you know, but I understood that it upset her for me to say things that were kind of like, well, if God 
did that, then he wasn't very loving, or if he did that, then he wasn't very smart, and if he did that, then he wasn't omnipotent, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and then she would just be shocked. So, no, I'm not the only one, and it is part of the very unique thing about uh, Christianity that it places this enormous emphasis on truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Those things take root in you, mm-hmm. and they and you use them to the max. Yeah, but it's, most don't, though. Well, it's it's no, because they get to the point where uh, I mean the the painful part. Well, you know, if, if you read Altemeyer's study, Amazing Conversions, he. Uh, he talks about you know the diff- different kinds of people because there are the other kinds of people who are, some even brought up in non-religious households who get converted because they're they too are searching for the truth but they want an easy truth they want to feel good you see for me it wasn't a question of feeling good because I I was also brought up with this uh, this, this real Protestant work ethic you know if if you're not working and if you're not uh, doing things for others or or taking care of business or doing whatever, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your life. And it doesn't have to feel good because work is all about doing what needs to be done because it needs to be done, because it's there, you are there, it needs to be done, and you can do it. So there there was this other aspect. So I would say that the, the Protestant uh, part of it also played a role and... Um, and the work ethic in my family, which was, you know, always very, very hard work. And, you know, I had a grandfather who raised me. And my grandfather was missing the middle finger on one of his hands. And on the other hand, he was missing half the middle finger. And the story about how he missed, how he lost these fingers, he was, uh, he was an engineer and he was uh, at, at a job and he was, uh, overseeing something and he put his hand in somewhere to show somebody how to do something and they let go of, of a big piece of equipment and it fell on his hand and it crushed his finger. Well, he went to the doctor, had the, had the finger removed, stitched up, and went back to the job. Hmm. See, so this was the kind of people... The same day. That same day, yes. Hmm. Yes. And, uh, you know, so this this is the kind of background I had that pain you do what you have to do no matter how much it hurts and even if it's hurting you mm-hmm. keep going so for me that was that was another thing that i thought was valuable or or it was well in a certain sense that could be applied to two different ways two very different ways depending on the person the one person who was brought up with that ethos would stick with their religion through thick and thin no matter what uh doubts they had and another person like you would go the opposite direction, but based on the same kind of uh, motivation, you know, to keep going, and no matter how much it hurts. On the one hand, it's the hurt of, you know, resisting the doubts and sticking to religion, and on the other hand, it's pushing through and believing, and, uh, believing your eyes rather than what they tell you. Get thee behind me, Satan. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those kinds of arguments can be used. But, yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of like it's, uh, uh, from what you're saying, it's almost like, you're suggesting that most people are born with a 
some kind of an innate desire to know the truth, and but religion comes along very quickly in their lives and, and tells them, the them answers, what yeah. the answer is. And then because they're maybe immature uh, as children, basically, they just adopt that and then they... they and then it, it feels it good and it feels them. safe and, and the, the fear of being yeah. rejected or the fear of being uh, called a heathen or whatever. Mm-hmm. But those things never bothered me. And I guess there's also the other thing, because Altemeyer points out that most people who uh, convert to religion uh, usually have problems that they can't solve in their life. Mm -hmm. And they need somebody outside to give them some kind of strength. And there's a psychologist named Schmuckler who wrote an interesting bit about, you know, endoskeletons and exoskeletons. You know, there are people who feel strong inside and people who don't. There are authoritarian followers who need to be told what to do, and there are people like me that, you know, don't like to be told what to do. That was another thing, because in spite of all this, I had a great deal of freedom when I was growing up. I grew up in Florida when it was a paradise, and I had a, a lot of freedom, you know, a lot of a lot of time to really enjoy myself in the, in the wilderness or the wild or whatever, because we had a farm and beach and swimming and tromping around in the woods and hanging out with our friends. And it was a great time growing up in the 50s and 60s when, you know, you weren't afraid of everything and everybody and you'd go around, be gone for hours and then come back home. So mm-hmm. there were there were just a lot of elements that just came together. And I think also being intellectually inclined and, and growing up in a family where reading was very important and uh, education was extremely important, uh, was, you know, very powerful influence on me. So I, mm-hmm. I started reading when I was three years old, and I, by the time I was 10, I was reading, uh, reading at what they, you know, probably college level. And, uh, and by the time I was in junior high school, I was reading a book every single day, an entire book, because at, at that point I, I uh, had a great teacher who, gave us a six-week uh, training in speed reading. So, And I also kind of have a semi-photographic memory. I don't forget much. I see. How many books a day do you read now? Well, now I don't read books a day because I spend so much time working with our people, with our forums, and doing research uh, that I, I spend a lot of time scanning and reading things from the internet or reading uh, scholarly papers or so forth and I do most of my uh, I I don't know I guess it would probably amount to a book a day the amount of reading I do because I really do a lot of reading but it's not in books it's mostly online and then when I go to bed at night I spend a half hour to an hour uh, reading whatever my current research topic is Uh, usually they're very dry books uh, that nobody else in the world reads, or very few, only scholars read them. But I read them, and I actually, I actually enjoy them. <laughs> Don't I mean? It's a masochist in you. Yes, it's the, <clears throat> it's the do it no matter how bad it hurts. It's that Protestant work ethic. <laughs> well, yeah, going speaking on of masochism, I mean, it seems, I and mean, a lot of people write to us about, you know, how, um, how can you, how, why is anything, why is nothing easy? Why do you have to pay so much? Why isn't there any free lunch? And it seems to me that from what you're saying, um, since you were little, you kept that curiosity almost like a child has, you know, to learn and learn and learn and assimilate. And that comes also with a price. 
but you're not afraid of that or you, you learned somehow that that suffering leads to something that is much more valuable and we still keep getting, you know, this reaction that, oh, well, it's depressing or, you know, I just want the easy way. How do you, how did you come to realize that that wasn't your path or? Ooh, that's kind of a tough one because, uh, well, I'll give you, I mean, there were many incidents that I observed in my life where people took the easy way and it always it always ended badly. I mean, I could see it. And the thing was, like I just mentioned, I think probably one of the one of the most amazing gifts that I was given genetically and for which I am enormously grateful is my memory. And I wouldn't forget when I saw these situations. Some somebody would do something, something would happen, they would take the easy way out or oh it'll be fine or at least said soon it's mended and then, you know, disaster would follow and and it was like you know, couldn't they see that coming? I mean, they took the easy way. They they wanted to feel good, and disaster followed. And uh, it, uh, you know, it really, really struck me very, very powerfully. And when you go through life observing and read, and of course, you know, you read a lot of stories and you read uh, biographies, and I read lots and lots of history. And over and over again, you know, whenever I would read a story about somebody who took the easy way or wanted to feel good, you know, it was always disaster. I mean, a disaster. And I, I remembered it. I mean, it just piled up in my head like a, a giant mountain building in my mind that whenever people do that, it's bad. It's obviously bad. And I could see it also happening in people's lives around me. And some of those instances, I don't. You know, some of them would be kind of personal, but um, um, I can give one little example. I had a girlfriend when I was in, in uh, I just just out of high school, and she was already married and had a, a you know two or three children. Yeah, she was a little bit older than I was, and I was at her house one day, and her little girl had was diabetic. Had, become diabetic very early in her life so it was like type 1 diabetes and she was already on insulin and she had lots of lots of problems and she would uh, and she had two or three other children and her husband and the thing was was this little girl wasn't allowed to have many things because of her illness but the family didn't see any reason that they should you know, deny themselves what she couldn't have, you know, just to give her, like, moral support or to, you know, in uh, solidarity with her. So there was always a lot of uh, the things she couldn't eat, cookies and candies and things like that, that she kept on top of the refrigerator. And I was there, and the little girl was crying, crying, Mommy, Mommy, I want some candy. I got, I want some candy. I got to have some candy. got to have candy. No, no, if you have candy, you'll have to increase your medication. You may have to go to the doctor. It could make you sick. Oh, mommy, mommy, i got to have it. You know? And then after five minutes of this or so, and, you know, of course, I, I wondered why it was all there. You know, why, don't the, why doesn't the family, uh, you know, give all that up? You know, give her support. Why do they put it on the refrigerator where she can see it? And finally, after five minutes of crying for it, her mother says, oh, all right, but you know what's going to happen. You're going to have to have an extra shot and da-da-da-da-da. And she gave this child with diabetes 
candy that she shouldn't have had, knowing what it was going to do to her, and you know, setting up a pattern in her life where doing the easy thing, make, you know, taking the way that was easy, feeling good, was deadly. And I mean, it, it like symbolized, and I, I remember that incident, and it kind of like froze in my mind forever because it symbolized everything and everybody that I had ever seen or known about who took the easy way. The mother, and I, and I asked her, I said, Mara, why did you do that? And she says, well, I love her so much. I can't say no. And I just, you know, I mean, it just staggered my mind that she could say, I love her so much and what that kind of love meant. Because as it turned out, this child died rather young. And what's happening there? Is she not able to foresee the mother consequences? She must have been told explicitly. Well, certainly she was told explicitly what would happen if she didn't, you know, do some uh, monitoring and, and not let things get out of hand. And, uh, you know, that it it just was, a, it was just horrifying. Hmm. It was horrifying to me. And how many people are like that? I can't tell her no. I can't say no. I, I want to feel good. I want my child, because more than anything else, the mother wanted to feel good. She didn't want her child to say, Mommy, I don't like you, I hate you, and, you know, and it was... So it kind of involves a, it involves a certain fairly uncommon and pretty deep understanding of human psychology as well. Or It would require that for, you know, for a parent in that situation to act in the right way, to, to know that, in a general sense, human beings very often will kind of demand things that aren't good for them or want things that aren't good for them and then if someone is in a position of responsibility over them or a friend or even someone who can give advice uh, kind of should kind of uh, give advice to a person to save them from themselves sometimes because people don't always make the right decisions right so I mean it's kind of like it's like just because someone says I really really want this will you help me to do it I mean you don't just go along and do it because they're your friend if you can see that it's bad for them I mean it seems fairly prosaic in a way but so many people just give in to can't they say want no. to feel good yeah. and, and it's particularly difficult in the parent-child relationship because you know it's it's mostly about narcissism i want my child to make me feel good and when the child is not making me feel good i want to do whatever it is and i mean even to the even to the point of harming the child's health so and and i don't know if it takes really deep psychology to understand that uh, but it obviously was a little deeper than what she could mm-hmm. understand well, at least a bit of reflection well yeah mm-hmm. but people don't reflect and they don't think and more than anything and this is this is the thing more than anything I saw that people wanted to feel good that theme repeated over and over again in things I was observing in other people's lives and you know and so is, it, is that what kind of led you probably one of the things that ultimately led you to uh, do a lot of research into kind of human psychology. I mean, absolutely. I mean, really early on, I uh, I wanted to understand why people do the things they do, why they think the things they think. You know, what's going on, and of course, you know, part of that interest included um, things like reincarnation, because you know, you give up your uh, your Christian religion more or less. Well, actually, I really didn't, but 
you know, the, the way it's formulated in our in most of the mainstream churches. I gave up, and I um, that kind of meant that okay, you have to look and see if any of these other religions have it. So one by one, I was peeling through them. Um, exploring them, looking at what they were teaching. And, and you know, the, the truth is, is there's just a lot of variations of pretty much the same old, same old. But there was reincarnation. So, of course, is reincarnation real? I mean, it's kind of a logical thing. Um, if you, you know, start thinking about the animating spirit of bodies and the difference between living bodies and, and uh, inanimate objects, you know, rocks and and minerals and things like that, that there's something very, very different about living things from non-living things. So what is this animating thing? Is it just a kind of like a byproduct? And of course, you know, I didn't. it didn't seem logical that it was, and so I thought I would explore reincarnation, and that got me into, into um, hypnosis and training to be a hypnotherapist and I spent many many years you know poking around in people's heads trying to find out what was making everybody tick and uh, that you know that led to a lot of different things what was your conclusion about reincarnation well I have to tell you what I tell everybody I don't believe anything because belief to me is like yeah you know you 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 give up something but i give it a really really high probability i mean you have to understand that there could be one bit of data that could come along that would completely disprove it it hasn't come along in my life yet and i keep looking but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist because you know, the universe is kind of infinite and endless. So mm. uh, I think it's really highly probable, and I have had some really astonishing experiences in my own personal life and in the lives of my family. And all of the people that I worked with with hypnotherapy, uh, I am I am about as convinced of it as that the sun will rise tomorrow. And I think that's got a really high probability of happening. I mean, there is this really remote chance that it won't, that, you know, our star will go out all of a sudden and, and mm. <laughs> you know, or explode or whatever. But uh, well, uh, in terms of the, the alternative, the, the mainstream kind of alternative, which is one life and heaven or hell, I think uh, even if it has to remain in the realm of belief, Incarnation is much better, much better and more positive for humanity in general belief than the one life in heaven or hell because there's all sorts of kind of, if people actually believed it, if it was spread around through Christianity and, and, and Islam, you know, the dominant uh, faiths, if they all had re, uh, reincarnation uh, as part of their belief system, and people believed it, it would have a lot of positive, I think, changes or, or effects on humanity. Um, in terms of just the very idea that you could come back because it, it tends to involve karma and and that you know I mean even for racism and stuff like that if you, if people believe that you know this life I'm this life I'm oh, white next oh, time I'm black last that, time I was black yeah, this time you know, I'm Jewish next time I'm Christian so or vice to, versa it would tend to have a it would it would it would tend to have a leveling effect mm -hmm. on how people you know think about themselves and each other and. Uh, 
Yeah, it, w- it would be a very beneficial thing if it were uh, if it were more widely spread as a, as a concept. Mm. Um, but it's very much it's very much uh, kind of suppressed via the mainstream religions. I mean, well, they the certainly main- hold on to their yeah. The mainstream religions, of course, suppress it and they and they kind of dominate. Uh, but then, of course, science represses that along with mainstream religions. But they. They, they've kind of established a peaceful coexistence between science and religion. You know, science is all about matter, and religion is all about spiritual matters. Because, you know, it, it, whatever they refer, I refer you to your pastor or your religion. You know, you can believe what you want to believe. You know, but we're talking about you know atoms and molecules and so and so here. So don't bring that into the laboratory because you know you just go consult your pastor. And they keep that kind of really separated, and they they frame the debate that way. It's either or. And as a result, um, you know, human beings are really deprived of anything that could be really useful and helpful to their their relationships with themselves, with their families, with uh, their society, and societies with other societies. And, you know, it's just, it's really sad. It's really sad. Uh, we might have a call here. Yeah. So I'm just going to go ahead and take it. Um, to see. Sometimes people just tend to uh, call, in. call in. Call in to listen. In. Call in to listen. Hi. Do we have a caller? Or are you Do just we listening? have a caller or are you just listening? We've got serious feedback. I'm going to put that one down to just a Call, I'll listen. I reckon his speakers won't pull there. Well, yeah. tell tell people that if they want to call in, they have to turn their sound off yeah. because you can't be sending feedback through the microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what you're just saying, I mean, brings up the kind of touches on the idea of you know science and religion, creationism, or sorry, uh, the theory of evolution versus. Uh, intelligent design. Um, I know you've written about this in the past. Mm-hmm. Can you sum up your your stance on this? Are you uh, do you support Richard Dawkins? As what did he say? He says um, he considers faith, that is belief that is not based on evidence, as one of the world's great evils, and claims that the world would be more peaceful without faith. I think he's wrong. I think faith is very important, not belief. Faith. Mm-hmm. He says faith. Yeah, well, faith is extremely important, but not belief. And Richard Dawkins and his ilk with, you know, their Big Bang Theory, I mean, just think about it. You know, a primal atom of unimaginable density uh, suddenly exploded, and its explosion initiated all the matter in the universe, space itself, and time. And from that, you know, with a little jostling around in the primordial soup, everything came to be in something like 12, 13 billion years. Uh, they keep changing the date. And, you know, if I ever in my life heard a creationist story, that is it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Dawkins himself, in one of his books, uh, when he's asked the question, well, where did the primal atom come from? You know, he says, well, that's, it's not my job to answer that question, ask the physicists. Mm. I mean, talk about a cheap escape yeah, on that. Dodging the, yeah. And, of course, uh, 
the whole the whole thing is is I mean that's that is so improbable, and that's not to say that I don't think that evolution is not a very powerful part of uh, what happens in our in our reality, but it doesn't happen the way they say it happens. And if anybody wants to uh, read a really good book on it, which uh, I think is probably getting as close to the, the right answer. It's uh, what's his name? Schiller was this? What was the guy's name? The fifth option. Yeah, the fifth option. It's really the it, Robert Schiller. Was that his mm-hmm. name? I think it's yeah Schiller. S H I L L E R. But anyhow, he wrote this great little book called The Fifth Option. And the interesting thing about it is Schiller is an engineer, and what he did was he looked at the living system, you know, life itself, as an engineering problem. And if you have an engineering problem, you are presented with something, you begin to examine its characteristics, and then you kind of like extrapolate backwards to find out what the design purpose could be. And then if you have a design, design functions and design, you know, then you can figure out the design purpose, and then you can, you know, speculate at least about the designer. Um, I don't think there is a designer as such. I think what is the substrate of all existence is just simply information. And information uh, configures itself in many, many ways. And information, ultimately, if you think about it in in computer terms, it's just, you know, the the many myriad ways that yes and no, on and off, zero and one can be configured. Mm -hmm. And endless streams of it. In a sense, you know, some of those images from the movie The Matrix uh, come pretty close to uh, showing how how our reality may be constructed. It's just these long strings of zeros and ones, ons and offs, yeses and nos, that uh, interact with each other. And, and yeah, but where did it come from? I mean, that's, isn't that the problem that all these people try and yes, wrestle with? that is and, the problem. And is there... An answer to that, or is there even any point in trying to? I don't think I don't think we at our level of existence can get that answer. I think that yeah, I think we can go further into the question than the evolutionists or the Dawkins types can do, which is what physics actually does, and what mathematics actually does, and what my husband does. But you know, ultimately you realize that what you can do is you can configure those zeros and ones and you can do the mathematics, but beyond that, mm-hmm. you cannot go. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if, if we can't figure that out, uh, how does that translate even, how does information translate into matter, for example, or into consciousness? I mean, information, it's out there, right? And we pick it up like if it were, like if we were... And an antenna of some sort, and what if you have wrong information, lies? Well, those are just a couple of different questions, I mean, kind of piled up together. Um, how does matter come into being is one question, and the issue about lies is another question. Um, how does matter come into being? Well, as I said, it's it's configuration of yes and no, positive, negative. Um, If you want to talk about it in terms of electricity, it's like, you know, charge separation. Um, 
then there's you know many other physics terms and and you're getting into something here that's very very difficult to talk about but if you would imagine if if we're just going to talk about yeses and nos or positive negatives or zeros and ones let's just imagine that there's a whole bunch of zeros associating which are nos which are uh impetus to non-existence or parts of the ideas of non-existence a whole bunch of nos with Maybe just a few ones, which would be positives or the impetus to existing or creation associated together. Well, that would be kind of like a piece of matter. That would form as matter. Now, if you have something that has uh, a whole bunch of ones, which is impetus to creation, and just a few zeros, which would be the nose or the non-existence, then you would have something like... a spiritualized concept perhaps and you know so you kind of would cluster things you would add them together you know it's like addition and subtraction and uh, I would say that in from an ideological or informational realm that if there was a whole bunch of the the nose that kind of glomped together maybe in a, in a way uh, in a way like just jostling around in a soup. Uh, you know, but it's an idea soup. And they jostled around and they all kind of clumped together and there was a little bit of, you know, just enough of, of the ones to give it the impetus to become matter in the sense of hard matter, then it would kind of like burst into existence all of a sudden. It would just kind of like be a little bubble. And then if you have a bunch of that, happening from because there's so many infinite ideas and so many infinite uh, concepts uh, you know concepts of like hydrogen and nitrogen and helium and you know so you start having these you know really basic little conceptual things you know popping into reality and lots of them and lots of them and then they start uh, jostling around and and because of the affinities uh, due to their accumulations or their properties of yeses and nos or positives or negatives then they begin to you know they begin to clump together because uh they they have this 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 tendency to do that the same way the fat on the bowl of soup has a tendency to want to clump together you know it wants to form a big a big bubble on your soup and then you would have matter and then you would still be having in the information realm you would still be having uh clumps of more spiritualized idea things but that still had enough of the of the zeros that would give them kind of a tendency to want to connect uh by some kind of charge to a piece of matter so they would then connect to it and there would be uh the matter that would be in one realm or uh one realm of existence or one uh plane and then there would be the spiritualized idea that would be kind of connected to it by a tenuous little link still in the spiritual realm. And then you would have kind of a, you know, and, and it would infuse this bit of matter with information. It would create a channel for information so that piece of matter could uh, then begin to do little more interesting things. And, and then you just multiply this process and then you get, you know, some pretty basic uh living cells you know like for example uh, a uh, a virus i mean this might be how viruses actually come into being that they are because they're they're really kind of 
they're not really alive and they're not really lifeless. I mean, they need a cell to get into in order to become alive because they don't have all the properties of a cell. And viruses can float around in space, you know, probably for billions of years and be dormant and then finally land on a place where there's a, a living cell and then in, and they kind of get into it because they've got little programs. And that's the interesting thing about it because all of these things are like little programs, like DNA are programs and viruses are programs. So uh, uh, maybe a virus is one of the most basic ways that um, information gets transmitted from other realms into our world. And that kind of leads in a funny sort of way to your question about information and lies. You know, what if viruses are infusions of information that create order? I mean, think about it. I mean, what if there is a civilization that is loaded with lies and it uh, has a deficit and there is something that needs to happen. And viri arrive on the scene with a certain kind of information and begin invading the cells. Well, in those individuals where the information quality and quantity is kind of topped up with truth, maybe the virus won't have any effect. And maybe in those people where they have a real deficit, the virus invades and takes over and the body dies and everything is returned to the information field. You know, it's just a lot of interesting thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a few questions here from uh, people in our chat room. One of them is, um, what, well, first of all, I should say, you know, you've written a lot of books, 13, I think, at last count, that span, I mean, is it more than 13? 16. 16. <clears throat> they just keep growing. Um, and it spans a broad range of subjects, probably all of them. <laughs> um, and, I mean, and, I mean, you're a, probably the best description of you is you're a historian, but not in the traditional sense, in a certain sense, because uh, it's a history of everything as opposed to just, you know, classical history or ancient history or something like that. Um, but you have written on those topics as well. And um, and just while I'm on the topic of your books, actually, I just should tell our listeners that um, there is a, for a short period of time, there's a, there's several of your Kindle books are on special offer um, on Amazon, the various Amazon stores. You can see them on the SOT.net webpage. Uh, there's up to 57% off some, some of your books on Kindle. So people should get them while they're hot. Uh, Yes, uh, the books are Laura's Biography, Amazing Grace, The Apocalypse, Comets, Asteroids, and Cyclical Catastrophes. And the third one is High Strangeness, Hyperdimensions, and the Process of Alien Abduction. So they're all on sale this week. Yeah. So get to the question. Yeah, getting to the question here, getting back to the question. Just given this amount of research you've done, et cetera, uh, we had to do a bit of promotion there, you know. Given this amount of research you've done, one of the questions from our listeners is what uh, has been the discovery in your research that has most blown your mind, in quotes? Wow. Blown my mind. Hmm. At any point in time. Well, you can name three if you want. Uh, 
I think I think the first the first one was probably the realization that our reality undoubtedly is extruded or created from another level of reality, not just another plane of existence, but a completely something completely different from anything that the esotericists have uh, told us, you know, down through the centuries, and that uh, all of the stuff that most esotericists deal with is just what you would call the non-material range of things in our reality. You know, it's it's like, um, you know, most people only reach to uh, non-material realms that are still commensurate with our particular level. But the realization that there was something and probably a number of somethings above and beyond that and that it goes through several steps before it even gets to where we are and that the things that are below us you know such as the animal kingdom and then the uh, mineral kingdom you know basic matter that those were realities too in a, in a certain sense and all these realities interpenetrate and seeing that and understanding it, i think that was the first mind blower what how do you what led you to see that is there any was it just a conglomeration of well that was that was something that came through the Cassiopeian experiment because you know I'd spent all these years uh, you know poking around in people's heads, dealing with reincarnation, studying religion, uh, psychology, mysticism, et cetera, et cetera, and pretty much it was just mo- most of it was just the same old same old repackaged stuff with just variations. I mean, you look at one religion, you look at another, you look at one esoteric system, you look at another, et cetera, et cetera. And most esoteric systems, believe it or not, are are predicated on the idea that the mainstream religions are true. And that that seems like a pretty bizarre thing, but th- that is uh what they're what they're based on. And the same thing with most new age stuff. It's it's all predicated on on there being some kind of truth to mainstream religions, once Judaism or Islam or Christianity or Shinto Shinto or Buddhism or uh, nature religions or whatever. They're still all kind of predicated on the basic religious ideas that exist in our reality being more or less true, you know, with some variation. So uh, when I came to the idea that well, I'm not satisfied with that. There's got to be a way to go farther and deeper and better. And I had also noticed that over over um, uh, throughout the history of of the uh, spiritualist movement, and even further back, you know, the ideas of many of the ancients. You know, where where did where were some of these things coming from? Because there were like flashes here and there that you could detect that there was something more, something deeper, but what was it really? And of course everybody said, oh, well, we've got the answer. And then you start looking at their answer and you pay, you know, $500 for their course and so on and so forth. And then you find out that it's just, you know, an, another variation on the same load of garbage. So that's why I began the experiment. And I, and I kind of formulated a theory before I even started that 
the reason we exist in this reality is because this is where we fit. And if we wanted to be able to uh, get in touch with or get information from anything that was really higher other than, you know, because like Edgar Casey said, you know, a dead Presbyterian is just that, a dead Presbyterian. And most of what people were communicating with were just what I would call, what I call dead dudes. And they would, uh, and then there was a lot of fraud, but, you know, basically it was just dead spirits. And how do you know they're telling the truth? Because most often you find that they're not. So how do you get beyond that? How do you get above that? And the idea was, well, if you, if you want to do that, it takes more than one person because the human, you know, as we are in our normal state, the human physiology, the human brain system and in the state that we normally achieve through our experiences, our learning, our challenges in this three-dimensional life simply doesn't get you to the point where you can carry that kind of current. So it takes more than one person. And that was what, uh, you know, that was part of my idea behind that. So anyways, that's what led me to that. But then there's the other one. I think probably this last, uh, this last 18 months or so, or how long has it been? It's been yeah, about that. about that, that I, you know, I started working on volume three of my secret history of the world. And I was, uh, I was just going along and I was going to race through uh, the Roman Empire and get in all of the uh, elements of uh, cometary disaster or portents or plagues or earthquakes and things like that, you know, basically to show that these are things that most historians really ignore and that they really were happening because I was comparing them to the geological and archaeological uh, research, you know, historians have only recently begun to uh, kind of allow archaeology and geology and other sciences, climatology, to influence their work. So I was going to take it a step further and also bring in some of the work of Victor Klub, you know, which uh, which brings in some cosmology, astronomy, and so forth. So I was going to make this big combination, right? So I was racing through the history of Rome, because I really wanted to get to the collapse of Rome. And I was really getting there, and I was writing about uh, uh, the comet of Constantine, because it's uh, there's evidence that what Constantine saw in the sky that caused his conversion, you know, so the story goes, uh, there's a lot of problems with that story, to Christianity was actually a comet impact somewhere in the northern part of Italy. And in order to really get all of the details around this, because I really wanted to know what was going on, I was you know, going deeply into Diocletian and this, uh, this whole setup, you know, how Constantine became emperor, Roman emperor. And somewhere I came across uh, this little the little fact that after Constantine had done his little usurping and there was Maximus down over, over in Rome and things were going on that uh, Diocletian came out of retirement. Now, he's the only Roman emperor who ever retired, <laughs> which is kind of kind of interesting. And I thought to myself, well, he retired, and that means he was probably an interesting guy, a lot more interesting than our history tells us. But that he and his fellow emperors met um, and erected an altar to Mithras. 
So at that point, I just simply wanted to put in a two or three paragraph description of Mithraism and then keep on moving. I mean, I was going fast. And I started looking around on the web and then I couldn't get a serious answer but I found that there were two or three books that were referenced, so I said, okay, pause, you know, put everything on pause, order the books, got to read about Mithraism. And then I read about Mithraism, and basically it got traced back to the time of Julius Caesar. And I said, okay, I have to back up and look at Caesar again, because I had just skimmed over him rather quickly, you know, I mean... I I ended the uh, section about Caesar, which was just you know blah blah blah. So Julius Caesar conquered everything, and and they had this big thing, and the Rome gained an empire and lost its republic and acquired a you know an emperor. As, you know, it was just kind of like little snappy uh, condensed history. And I said, oh no, I got to go back and look at his. his because I really want to know about this Mithraism business. Because the thing is, is Mithraism was so uh, was kind of like the main competition for Christianity. So what's the deal here? And I started reading about Caesar a little more carefully. Now I didn't know that much about Caesar, except you know just enough to to write a few paragraphs about what he did. And I got stuck there. And I started saying, wait a minute, something really strange is going on here. And I started getting everything I could possibly get my hands on about the times of Julius Caesar and reading all, and I had to order all the text. I mean, my God, you know, I mean, at, at this point, it's like, you know, several hundred books later and several, you know, probably a couple thousand scholarly papers later. And at some point, I was reading along and I thought to myself, Wow, this guy said things and did things, and the story of his life is like the story of Jesus. And I thought I was, you know, kind of crazy just for thinking that. And I came down to breakfast one morning and I announced, I said, you know, I think that maybe the story of Jesus was actually based on the life of Caesar. And everybody at the breakfast table looked at me like I'd taken leave of my senses. And they all began arguing with me. How can I say that? Because, you know, here I've spent 40 years trying to trying to find a single solitary piece of actual hard evidence or data that somebody called Jesus ever actually existed. And, I mean, zero, zip, zilch, nada, nothing. There isn't any. And... Here's the life story of somebody who we know is a real historical person. And if you really read the details in depth, not the military histories or the political histories, but you've got to read, you know, the details. You've got to get into it. And there's a wonderful book by Stefan Weinstock called uh, Divus Julius. So everybody thought I was crazy and they started arguing with me. And so I started listing all the things that, you know, G uh, Caesar had done and then you know why I thought that this you know I mean like he was the the big entry to the city you know the people lining the streets you know laying the palm branches and 
uh, you know, on the road in front of him and crying Hosanna and so on and so forth and, and et cetera. And then, but I'm just talking about his life, just talking about his life, that his life was like the life and, and feeding the poor. His big thing was feeding the poor, taking care of the poor, giving land to the poor, getting rid of the rich. And, and his, his constant struggle with the oligarchy at Rome, the, the Senate, the, uh, the, the optimates. I mean, it was an argumentation that went on between him and Cicero. It was like, it was like Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus and the Sadducees. You know, I mean, the whole dynamic was so similar. So at that point, uh, I had to stop because we went on a trip. And then when I came back, I started talking about it again because while I was while I was gone, I had continued to think about it. And then uh, uh, one of our researchers, you know, I, I said, I wonder if anybody else has thought anything about this. You know, so she went online and she found that there actually was uh, two other people who had the same idea, but they came at it from completely different directions. They weren't. Ta- they were. They, they didn't come at it from pure historical research into the life of Julius Caesar. They came at it from completely a different direction. One of them was uh, uh, Francesco Francesco Carrata. Carrata, yeah. And he came at it from the fact that uh, the funeral oration of Mark Antony over the body of Caesar was step-by-step and, and all of the things that happened at the death of Caesar was step-by-step, step, almost line-by-line, line, a recreation of the passion of Jesus. And even to the fact of, of a, of a uh, facsimile of Caesar's uh, stabbed body being raised up on a cross, and there were actors who were playing the part of Caesar and say, you know, repeating his words, you know, did I save them that they should, you know, that they should kill me? And, you know, various other expressions that were, that were part of the liturgy of the Christian passion. And even the story of, uh, of Caesar's body being there for a certain number of hours before somebody came to take it was almost equivalent to, uh, you know, when he, when he was assassinated, almost equivalent to, you know, Jesus hanging on the cross for a certain number of hours before somebody came to take him. And then they took him home and they put him in his wife's lap, basically, and from which you get this, this famous image of Michelangelo's Pieta. Which, and there are many other similar images that were even older than his of the dead Jesus in his so-called, in his mother's lap. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, Julius Caesar was extremely attached to his mother and a very loyal son throughout his life. But his mother was dead, but he was married to Calpurnia. And she was uh, younger than him and very beautiful. And, and so, the, you know, you see these depictions of this man with stab wounds in him uh, lying in this woman's lap. So, and then there was the curious fact that there was the, one of the main uh, uh, conspirators, the one who was really pushing the assassin, assassination, was Cassius. And we have... 
uh, Cassius Longinus. And there is the story that came down through history about, you know, the Roman centurion at the cross, you know, Longinus, who was the one who stabbed Jesus in the in, in the side under the ribs and the water flowed out. And then you have this strange uh, uh, conversion of elements of, you know, Judas, Brutus, Julius Caesar, Jesus Christ, uh then this ultimate, ultimate betrayal. And the funny thing was, was that Caesar, the night before he was assassinated, was at dinner, you know, the Last Supper, and the discussion was recorded of what they discussed, which was that they wanted to know who, what, what everybody thought, you know, what was the best kind of death. And what Caesar said, you know, whatever it is, it's just better if it's unknown and it's fast. You know, it's quick, quick death, quick and unknown. And then there is this uh, remark or this part of the uh, of the story of Jesus, you know, where he told Brutus to leave the table and what you must do, do quickly. Judas. Judas. Yes, sorry. So, you know, I mean, so many elements. So anyway, Carrada went through uh, as a linguist and showed how over time the copying and recopying and the misunderstanding and the transpositions from Latin to Greek to Syriac and, you know, the various language things that were going on, you know, exactly how, step by step, by standard linguistic rules, the story got changed and the name got changed. And then, of course, there's this other guy, Atwill, who came along and, and wrote about, um, um, he's actually the third person, but actually he's not. He was, he, he doesn't see the Jude, uh, Jesus and Caesar. The Jesus and Caesar connection. He just he thinks the Flavians and Josephus just created it out, you know, pretty much out of whole cloth. But he did add some interesting things because there was kind of like a combining of the element of the story of this of this Jesus who was a uh, a, a Jude, Judean rebel and also a friend of Josephus, and he. Kind of wrote the story about him in his in his uh, histories of the wars of the Jews and so forth. So there are a lot of elements that all came together, and I would say that you know it's kind of like I'm going to write about it and I'm going to bring all the evidence together. Karada's got a, a chunk, you know, he doesn't have the whole banana. Uh, this other guy, Gary Courtney, did a beautiful job analyzing the. Uh, the, the Gospel of Mark, showing how the Gospel of Mark actually was a liturgical play, which was the reproduction of the uh, assassination and um, uh, burial, or, or actually the, the cremation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Julius, Julius Caesar. Well, they're one and the same person. So. They're one and the same. I'm telling you, it's just getting hard to keep them straight anymore. But there's enough evidence coming from Carrada, from Courtney, from Atwell, and then my own really definitive uh, historical research that I was doing that led me to this idea completely independently of all of them without any of their particular perspectives. So I think that when I bring all of these perspectives together and the input from the from the from all of the um uh data that has been collected, I think it's going to be the probably I mean, it's so convincing. I feel like mm. that my, you know, my 40-year search 
for Jesus. It's it's uh, it's over. Hmm. I'm, I'm done. It's like the most mind blowing thing. I mean, you spend forty freaking years of your life trying to figure out if if this guy was ever real and. If he was real, what did he do that was so astonishing that people remembered him for, you know, 2,000 years? Well, Julius Caesar is definitely the man who is worth remembering for 2,000 years. And he has been remembered in a certain way, mm-hmm. but in the wrong way. And I think Julius Caesar needs to be restored because he is, as far as I can see in all my historical research, the greatest human being who ever lived. So that was the second one. That was the second one. Am I supposed to have three? I don't know. It's up to you. Mind-blowing? Yeah, Mind- blew your socks off. Blew my socks off. Or at least one uh, sock. Meeting my husband. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, Not co- necessarily in that order. <laughs> there's, co- there's a couple of uh, questions just related to that. I'll just throw one in about Mithraism. Uh, is, is it possible that there might be a connection between the philosophy of alchemy in the terms of building a soul and that of Mithraism? Um, I would say that it's quite possible because I think alchemy itself probably is about building a soul. And I think that, uh, you know, of course, nobody really knows what the Mithraic people were really were doing. Um, there's some new research. I mean, Beck, who is considered to be the expert on Mithraism, has uh, recently written a paper where he proposes that Mithraism was consciously and deliberately created out of whole cloth, more or less, in and around Rome. And uh, so whatever they were doing, I think that they were trying to uh, create a system that would uh, bring people together, make them a support network, and I don't know whether it was subversive against the government or if it, because it was mostly soldiers, mostly soldiers and traders and people who uh, traveled around in the empire into trading zones or into the provinces. But it was there was a concentration around Rome, and then there's a spiritual aspect to it as well. Wasn't there it? was a spiritual aspect to it, but I'm not sure that. I think some of the spiritual aspects kind of were added on later Hmm. because they started out with some real interesting iconography, uh, their uh, their taroctony, their scenario of the killing of the bull. And I even wonder if there's not some something of a takeoff on the assassination of Julius Caesar in there. when I get to that point, I'm going to start really pulling on those threads in a serious way, and then I'll probably be able to give you a better answer about that. I mean, okay. I, I just stopped. I stopped even worrying about Mithraism when I started reading about Caesar. I'll come back to Mithraism. I want yeah. to answer it. Yeah. The, the Caesar thing really did kind of <clears throat> it blew, blew my socks off and some other undergarments. Uh, <laughs> Because there's something just, it's not just about history being revised, you know, it's because of the place that Christianity has taken at Jesus. I mean, even if you're not a believer, most people in the Western world, which is several few billion people, let's say, are brought up with that idea, even if they're not practicing Christians, they're brought up with the idea of Jesus and heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff. And just to have the rug pulled out from under it in such a profound way by just removing the central figure in Christianity and, and, and showing that it was most likely another actual historical figure, Judas Caesar, who had nothing to do with 
what Christianity teaches in, in, in a certain sense are, you know. Well, actually, he just, did. He had, okay. a, he had a great deal. I mean, the, the idea of clemency, of forgiveness, yeah. that was Caesar's. Well, it's a version of it in terms Feeding of... Feeding the poor. But the that whole, was Caesar. But the spiritual aspect of it in terms of the airy-fairy oh. spirituality that oh. traps so many people. Well, yeah, all of, that, all of that's a load of garbage. And I think the same kinds of loads of garbage got added onto a lot of other things. But it, 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 it began with, with there, was, there was a man who really existed and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a namby-pamby guy because he won every battle he ever fought nearly always against, you know unbelievable odds you know he was all about you know taking care of the poor you know restoring the republic you know just just so many things um justice clemency honor piety self-respect um that's a religion right there that's enough i mean there's oh it, it was just it was I mean, it's fabulous. If that could have been turned into a kind of a, a practical religion, because it those was. ideas are spiritual ideas, essentially, at this level, they're all people need, really, you know. I mean, maybe you can get into theorizing after that, but in terms of having uh, a decent life on planet Earth and, you know, the ideas of the Ten Commandments, what, what Caesar preached, essentially, or what he espoused what? is... And what he lived. Yeah. <clears throat> that's more that's more than enough but it's been turned into this monster well that's what i think the flavians did i mean I, that's where atwell's piece of the puzzle comes in the flavians deliberately consciously uh well the cover-up or the marginalizing of julius caesar actually began with augustus you know augustus needed julius caesar very much in the beginning because uh julius because the army the, the whole army whole Roman army was, except for you know, a few legions that belonged to Pompeius, you know, they were all loyal to Caesar, and he needed that army to back his takeover, his bid for power. So he needed to be, you know, uh, Divas Filius, son of the god. And, of course, it was really just, uh, I, you know, a fluke that there was this fabulous, amazing comet that appeared in the sky, and it was probably one of the greatest comets of all, you know, of that period of time, right during the funeral games for Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar was divinized. I mean, there is Caesar in the sky. You know, he is, he, he is, he, by he is, being a he is risen. he is risen, he is risen. Mm-hmm. And there he is, and he's not dead. He can intercede for us. We can pray to him, and and we can follow his example, and, and it, was, it was the soldiers, I mean, the soldiers, the Roman army, you know, they took this all over the empire and all the places where they were settled in colonies, like in, the, you know, Bithynia and uh, Galilee. There was a whole bunch of Caesar's soldiers that were settled in Galilee. They were settled around Narbonne in southern, in southern France and up along the, you know, in various other places. Mm-hmm. So they were doing this, and they all... They all worshipped Caesar, and they recited his liturgy on the anniversary of his death, which was the 15th of March, every year. So this was going on. And, and then what it was, was because it was a soldier's thing, people also got the idea that a human being can stand up to you know, evil, evil dominators. Caesar set the example. So this is what the Jews were doing because the Jews particularly loved Caesar because he was very, very, very fair, fair to, to them. them. And he was thankful to them for helping him when he was in um, in Egypt. So you, 
You can kind of imagine that today, given the state of the world and just how kind of the extent to which anti-human and inhuman ideas have propagated around the world and our global society, you can imagine today that if someone came along and somehow rose to power and basically just spread the opposite of what is prevalent today, basically humane ideals like, like Caesar did, that they would be worshipped. You know, if they were able to kind of turn our world today around. So it's almost like when it mm-hmm. gets so bad where almost all hu- real decent humanity has been, or human ideals have been removed from the kind of common discourse and from people's psyches, that people, if, if someone came along to restore that, they would be held as a, a savior. Because well, they certainly are saving people from... There were statues in, in uh, the eastern part of the empire where Caesar was... Uh, you know, these these have been found archaeologically, the bases of the statues. The actual statues have probably been destroyed long since. But uh, the engraving or the, the, the carving in the bottom of the statue, you know, Julius Caesar, savior of the world. And this was all over the empire. This was, I mean, there mm-hmm. enough of these, this was all over the empire. The idea of Julius Caesar as the savior of the world. And the fact that people did worship him, that he did become a god. And so Augustus promoted this for a period of time because he needed to be the son of the god because that strengthened his position. Mm -hmm. But after he'd been in power for a certain number of years uh, and things had calmed down, then he needed more the support of the old oligarchs, the ones that survived you know, to help him begin to govern the empire, you know, to create a bureaucracy and that sort of thing. So he had to kind of start marginalizing Caesar because Caesar had been, you know, in complete opposition to this whole oligarchy. Mm-hmm. And so he began the process and it proceeded. And by the time the Flavians came along about, you know, 100 years later, uh, they just kind of finished the job, them and Josephus, and they just rewrote things. And, and and it was probably easy to do by that time, because by that time, the copies of the liturgy, which is probably what the Book of Mark began as, a liturgy of the of the death and, and resurrection of Julius Caesar, uh, had, you know, lost some things. And I think they deliberately re- got hold of copies of text and wrote his battles out of the text and inserted his so-called healing miracles. I mean, because, you know, let's face it, you're talking about a barefoot dude in a little rinky-dink country uh, on the edge of the Mediterranean, and the only thing he did was go around and heal a few people, and then he got crucified, and this is supposed to be the most astonishing. Uh, Oh, forget the resurrection part, because it didn't freaking happen. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't resurrect. That is not what happened that made everybody big believers. You know, just erase that from your mind because it didn't happen. So if you removed that, the only thing you have left is some guy that went around and healed a few people. And there were so many other holy men and, you know, ecstatic type preachers in that world that were doing equivalent things that... You know, this was nothing special. This is nothing special to create a world religion. However, what Julius Caesar did, what he did and what he was, was more than enough to make him a superman. I mean, Mm. a man that, 
I mean, I just wish everybody would start reading everything they can get their hands on. About. And the wonderful thing is, even though we've lost most of his writings, there is still a text written by the man himself that exists. His commentaries on the Gallic Wars and the uh, African, well, he didn't write the African Wars, but his commentaries on the Gallic Wars. Did you know Caesar invented the book and the newspaper? Huh. Most people don't. He invented the book. And Christians were always known as the people of the book. Mm -hmm. And everybody else, you know, I mean, all of the the Roman oligarchy, they were very irritated by this because, you know, why couldn't Caesar use a scroll like everybody else did? And he just found it was far more interesting and far more uh, useful and convenient to have pages bound together at the edge that he could flip and, you know, just continue reading and writing instead of having, because he was always on the march. He was always marching around. And, I mean, come on, the guy did not have epilepsy. You know, he wasn't, you know, a crazy guy. He was on the march, in the sun, in the cold. I mean, he did incredible. He did miraculously. He scared the hell out of Cicero because he was so uncannily fast. He could get, He could get from from Rome to somewhere up in the center of Gaul faster than the messenger who was sent to announce his coming. Mm-hmm. The man traveled like a madman, and, and he could dictate to four or five secretaries simultaneously while he was traveling. The man was amazing. Okay, well, at least almost half of the books you published are a series of books called the Wave series. They all have different titles, but they're all mm-hmm. uh, on the same. Yeah, that's my theme. experiences in the in the New Age world of mm-hmm. of alternative religions, beliefs, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very interesting, uh, essential reading, really. But um, what is the Wave? Why is it called the Wave? Well, it started out, I was just going to, you know, I had all this material from the Cassiopeian experiment, and they kept talking about this wave that was going to change our reality. And, you know, it was kind of like a mysterious thing, and this started back in 1994, you know. And uh, so I had it in my mind that I was going to select, get, go through these transcripts because, you know, there was a problem with, you know, because we kept asking different questions and changing the subjects and with different people in the sessions you couldn't stay on a subject and so all of these references to the wave were scattered throughout you know a thousand pages of text so i was going to get them all out you know write a little bit about the context and put them all together and i figured it would make you know eight or nine or ten you know web pages and they would just you know just be like a little mini book and it probably if it was published in book form wouldn't be more than a hundred pages right mm-hmm. and so i started to put the first one up and then i started getting emails from people asking me questions well what about this and what about that and so it just kind of went from there and at the time i was also still um working my way through some of these issues myself, trying to analyze them. So they were asking me questions about things, and so I began to you know, analyze them and, and collect together the excerpts from the various books that I had read on these various topics you know, to, to give them insight. And there were, you know, I have a, a kind of a unique collection of books, and I realized not everybody was lucky enough uh, to have the collection of books I had, so I would you know, go through and transcribe out 
sections of the books that referred to their questions and posted it on in the thing in the in the wave series and it just grew and grew and grew and i mean it was just like the the darndest thing i've ever seen because i i don't know what happened there i mean i started out you know people will notice or or on the old website they'd notice that i would have um um the the i was numbering them alphabetically the wave a okay that was supposed to be the wave a that's supposed to be one page but then somebody would write me a question on the same topic, and I would have to add some addenda. So then there was wave A1, and then wave A2, wave A3. And then finally I could get to my next topic that was planned, and that became wave B. And then somebody would send a question, and I'd have to answer it. So B1, B2, and then and so on. So I very rarely stuck to my plan of of naming these files according to a nice, simple A, B, C, D, E, F, G alphabetical system because I think I've got like the wave J12. It was crazy. So that was, that was, and it's about all kinds of esoteric experiences and what reality really is. And, and I shared experiences from hypnosis sessions that I'd done with people and, and basically shared the experience that I had of being initiated directly by what can only be described as a higher density source. I was being led through experiences in my life and some of them were fairly phenomenal. Some of them were some of them were downright paranormal, let's face it. Okay. Uh but it it, it you know, I just put it together and uh Mm-hmm. And that's what the wave is. It's so that you mean that's it's what exposing the, this other reality, showing how it's real, mm-hmm. yeah. showing how what 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 we get taught with the so-called esotericists, the so-called mainstream religions, the new age things. You know that they're all just variations on the same theme, and why and how uh, they fall apart when you start really examining them, and what is really there when you pull curtain back what is the man behind the curtain who is he what is he what's he doing mm-hmm. and you um you mentioned the cassiopeians uh <clears throat> has your understanding i know people can people probably know how they describe themselves what they are has your understanding of of what that is evolved over the years of the of the kind of communication if you want to call it that well, let me just say, when I read the earlier sessions, you know, I absolutely blush with embarrassment at at, at my own ignorance and naivete. Um, I wasn't using my head, but at the same time, I have to think about the fact that I really had done all the reading that you're supposed to do to try to answer these questions. I mean, I'd been peeling through a book a day for years and years and years and years. And I mean, I'd been studying and I'd been trying experiments with different things and so on. So, um, and I still was at that point where I was still buying into a lot of really, really erroneous beliefs that were illogical, but I couldn't quite see past the illogicality of them. Um, I couldn't, you know, there were like these like little missing linchpins, and that 
missing linchpin was about uh, the densities rather than dimensions of reality and and about the nature of reality and you know the unlimited nature of the universe and the openness of it and you know things that things that many esotericists don't like to acknowledge you know i mean like we had a a conversation here uh this past fall with some people who were visiting and they were talking about uh well such and such happened in so and so's life because they, you know they got together before they incarnated and they agreed to do this and this was a checkout point and so on and so forth and i said wait a minute wait a minute what you're saying presupposes that things are predetermined and i don't think it's quite that way you know i think that there is uh, that information and the uh, acquisition of information and making choices based on information can completely move you from one reality to another completely and you know all of those things about you know planning and predestination just fly completely out the window if you acquire some information and it causes you to make a change you freaking have changed your reality you may still have overlaps with your old reality, but you've changed your reality. And you do create your reality, but you don't create your reality by thinking nice thoughts and, 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 and uh, you know, wishing things were so. You change it by the acquisition, accumulation of information and making definitive choices based on that information that move you along a different timeline. And if you choose to move along the timeline of ignorance, of ignoring what's going on in your reality, then bear the consequences. It's almost like we all share the same reality, all humans share the same reality, but uh, people can set themselves on uh, kind of like paths towards a future that may be different from everybody else's or different from... I've got two videos I made Mm -hmm. that... uh, I think that we didn't make them public, did we? I talked about this particular process, but I think we're going to make them public because I, in the videos, I, you know, used some little visual aids to help people understand how creating your own reality actually does work. There is, it, it does, it does happen. Mm-hmm. We do create our reality, but it has nothing to do with the way it's generally taught. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it includes the acquisition of the most accurate and real information you can possibly acquire, the most truth you can pile up in your body or in your psyche, and then taking appropriate actions based on that information. So uh, uh, maybe we'll put the links to those mm-hmm. two videos up with this uh, with mm-hmm. this. Uh, transcript of the show or something so people can watch them because it's it's much better if you watch the videos <clears throat> than me try to explain it on the radio. Mm-hmm. Well, that, um, that answers a question I was going to ask kind of on behalf of a lot of people who come to our websites and invariably it comes down to, okay, I see what's wrong with the world, but what can I do about it? Yeah, that's what these videos are about. These videos tell you in pretty precise terms how how it works and what you can actually 
do. Of course, I mean, it's told in such a way that you apply it to your own life and your own circumstances, your own situation, because I'm not giving a specific situation and a, a specific formula. But each person's, you know, I'm just basically in these videos teaching you the principles because there are principles and I've applied them in my life and many other people have applied them in their lives. They work. I mean, they really, really do work. But it all depends on information because information is probably, you know, the most important thing about our reality that you will ever encounter. And the more you have, and information is truth. You really have to have truth because if you start loading yourself up with lies or feel good things, you know, just like we said at the beginning, you know, da disaster is going to ensue. Yeah, well, that that kind of ties up with the uh, the idea that you just you can't just accumulate. You know, I mean, there's many people who read probably as much as you do, but one of the things that characterizes you is the the drive to actually share it and apply it and and do something for people. You know. Well, that comes from my Christian background again. <laughs> Book of James, um, faith versus works. Show me your faith, I'll show you my works. Hmm. Um, let me ask you a question that we actually got from a reader on our on Red Pill Press last week, and it kind of ties up with what you were describing about how your views changed uh, from the beginning of the Cassiopeian experiment to now. And he said, um, why did Laura stop writing about aliens, angry tone, and instead started talking about history and science? Did she get threatened? Or is she hiding more knowledge from us? <laughs> <laughs> You're hiding the truth about aliens. I am trying to collect together the most essential truths about our world and our reality. That Because if you do not know your history, you do not know how you got where you are, how things got to be the way they are, and where they are likely to go because history repeats itself. And if you do not know the truth about it, you do not know where you are on the historical cycle, you don't know what's going to happen next, you are then incapable of making intelligent choices to change your freaking reality. We are on a reality where 90% of the world live in ignorance, and this reality is going to have a massive infusion of information, probably in the form of some kind of unpleasant event, because... You know, one of the rules of physics is that, you know, the more unlikely an event, you know, the more information it carries. So we're going to have some serious unlikely events in this reality. I would like to transition myself into a different reality that doesn't experience the outcome that is going to happen. Because what happens is that the universe looks at this planet. It sees what it's doing. It sees what's happening. It sees, you know, the terrible, you know, inaction, the silence of people against the pathology that is in power, that's destroying the planet, destroying the life, destroying, you know, other people, destroying uh, literal, you know, freedom, you know, human rights, all of those things. And it will correct. It will correct. And if you're on this planet and you're part of that reality, when it happens, you know, sayonara, hasta la vista, baby. Do you think there's some causality involved there in terms of... Uh, Absolutely. <clears throat> but is it not possible that in some, by, by way of some mysterious mechanism that the two are simply, simply happen around the same time throughout history that humanity, human life on Earth just goes through this cycle where it, because of human nature and psychopaths, etc., 
Um, well, I, I kind of addressed that at the end of, um, of my last book, uh, Comets in the Horns of Moses, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to uh, bring that out in this next volume to show how it is the behavior of humanity in mass that attracts, because when you... When you have a bunch of people who believe lies, there is a lack of order. There is a lack of information. And when there is insufficient information to maintain order, the organizing principle where, you know, things happen decently and there's not death and destruction and pain and suffering, the cosmos appears quite regularly to react against that. And it's, you know, that's one thing that is absolutely clear in my historical research. So for this poor guy who's wondering about aliens, you know, you better listen up, buddy, because you need to know your history and you need to know as much of it as you can possibly accumulate in your body, because then that will give you the essential, crucial knowledge of where you are now, what is happening around you now and what freaking going to happen next. And if you don't like it. You need to make some decisions and choices and do something to move yourself out of that reality that you don't like. It's not a question of wishing a new reality or a savior to come and create a new reality for you. It's a question of you knowing how to move out of the one you don't like. Because this, you can't argue with 90, you know, 90% of the population that likes this reality the way it is. How the heck, I mean, you know, the, people keep talking about, oh, we're going to have World Meditation Day. We're going to have World Peace Day. We're gonna, all going to meditate on peace. Well, okay, so you take 2,000 people. Do you take a million people, a million people meditating on World Meditation or Harmonic Convergence Day to bring world peace, and there are 90% of the population on the entire globe, which is some 7 billion people, and you got 1 million people that want it this way, and you got this other, you know... 99 plus percent. Uh, you know, this other 6 point, what, 9 billion people that believe the pathological leaders and want to follow them and want the world to stay the way it is, and you actually think you can turn that Titanic around? Are you nuts? Right, but... Just based on what has been said in the Cassiopeian sessions, is it is it simply people making those choices themselves uh, that can change their reality, or is there some mechanism like we talked there about? There has a to be a network. There, people have to be networked together. They have to be collinear. They have to be moving in the same direction. They have to understand things in the same way, or else there is not enough weight to the information they accumulate and enough you know collection of this of this energy that can cause them to move to another reality to create another reality it takes a network but is there a, is there a macro cosmic force that facilitates some kind of a a movement to a new reality that is probably the wave because there is there are things happening there are things that we notice in our cosmos our solar system we notice uh you know our sun is going quiet you know there has been global warming on all the planets in the solar system and i don't think you know we we've been uh, producing carbon monoxide or dioxide emissions on mars venus jupiter or saturn 
you know, they've all been accumulating extra uh, moons and so forth. There's something really big going on in the cosmos, and and there's and, and there's something happening. There's something coming. There is something going to happen. And at that moment, if there is a network, if there is a sufficient number of people who see things the same way, and we're not talking about some kind of overlord group mind here. We're talking about people who see and perceive truth, because truth is truth is truth. I mean, it's not your truth, my truth, his truth, her truth. That's that freaking feel-good shit. Get over it. There is truth. There is reality. And how do you envision that, that transition? You know, you talk about third density and fourth, the possibility of transitioning into fourth density when the wave supposedly comes. I think when you start to accumulate certain information you already begin your own transition and some of the information involves dietary changes that actually change the dna of your body and make your body more receptive to that energy so that you're actually better able to transform uh let me tell you one thing you know the the lining of your stomach uh, replaces itself something like every eight hours that's because it's you know it it hosts uh, a lot of activity that is very destructive to tissues. But what it tells you is, is that there is, uh, there is a mechanism that can speed up the production, the building uh, of cellular tissues. You know, other parts of your body, I, you know, there are other parts that replace every, you know, the entire organ gets replaced every 24 hours, you know, like parts of your pancreas, you know, other parts that, you know, replace more rapidly, you know, bones every so many years and this and that and the other thing. Okay. There is like something like 2% of our DNA is what they say builds our bodies. Okay, what if some of that DNA could instruct our bodies to transform in, in, in a way that I'm talking about where, I mean, they literally, when that DNA gets turned on, it transforms you completely. And all you're waiting for is a certain bit of cosmic energy and you have to be receptive to that cosmic energy. What if it's a virus that comes from space that causes the DNA to do that? What if, what if a virus comes and all the people who are receptive because they have the information and the information has caused them to make decisions like changing their diet and living a certain way and thinking a certain way and doing certain things. So this virus comes along and it gets in you. Well, what about the 90-some percent who didn't? accumulate the information and make the choices and decisions to move into another, you know, potentiated reality. Okay, so what's going to happen? Okay, the people who have it, the receptor, the receivership capability, they transform. The other people, black death, 80% mortality rate. And they might not even realize, right? It could be uh, They might that... not even realize. Well, yeah, that's how a transformation could happen because you can bet that when a transformation occurs, it's going to happen in ways that seem natural and follow the ordinary laws of our reality. You're not going to have some big, you know, flash Rapture. of light and, and get raptured to the skies or, you know, suddenly wake up and, you know, where you can, uh, you don't have to eat anymore and blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it, it's going to be, it's going to be transformative, certainly. And there are going to be transformations in your body, but they're going to happen according to the laws of the physical universe to some extent. Mm -hmm. 
because we're living in a reality where we fit. And if we move into another reality, a semi-physical one, there's still going to be a connection to this physical one. In the same way that we, as third-density beings, have a connection to our second-density creatures mm-hmm. and, and we ha- have interactions with our first density rocks and plant you know rocks and things like that you know we all interact together with these multiple densities mm-hmm. and we're and by the same way same token these these aliens or paranormal beings or whatever they are you know interact with us and we only see flashes of them you know they appear as ufos you know they come and go men in black you know abductions you know la di da 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 and we cannot you know, hold a, a contact with them because they can't stay in our hard physical reality because it's too congealed for them to stay in it very long. And we can't move into theirs unless they take us under special circumstances. So we are at this transition point. We need to make choices and decisions to, you know, to enhance our receivership capability. And we need to make Decisions to be networked together, to get rid of our sacred cows, to get ourselves, you know, squared away online, you know, in, in a collinear relationship, find out what the truth really is and, and, you know, get ourselves sorted out because that's what's going to do it. We may have a call here, so. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, uh, this is Jonathan from uh, Michigan. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thanks. Um, I, I had a question along the lines of uh, utilizing information, uh, what you were talking about, in conjunction with uh, physical laws. Um, some time ago, there was a lot of discussion on the Cassiopeia Forum about spinning uh, in relation to the Gurdjieff dances. And I wondered if you could speak to the practicality or impracticality of doing those kind of exercises. I think they're probably pretty useful for somebody who is, has a very strong moving center. Um, you know, I personally, uh, you know, <laughs> I have vertigo, so um, I don't do any spinning, as you might imagine. Uh, in fact, I try to avoid even turning my, tilting my head back to look up at a tall bookcase. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I think they're very useful. And the dances particularly, I mean, we had a discussion about dances. Now, we do try some of the dances, and we have gotten together and done some of those Sufi dances, you know, where you link arms and you go around in the circle and you chant and you have the drums going on and you're doing it around a fire and everything. That is really cool and is really powerful, very powerful. I love it. I think it, oh, I think well, that's it may great. do. I think it may do something for your DNA too. That's, I guess, specifically what I was curious about. You were talking about the diet uh, changing DNA on a certain level, and uh, so that was done in conjunction with some other physical exercises along these lines, if there's a magnified effect or some sort of a different effect. Oh, yeah. I suppose not very much is known about the details of it. Yeah, I think that, you know, we're all into a whole lot of experimental stuff because, I mean, once you throw out just about everything that's out there and you start picking piece by piece through everything and trying to, you know, trying to find what is real, what isn't real, then you start having to recreate uh, recreate things experimentally, you know, kind of scientifically, and I think we're doing that a little bit better than anybody else has ever done because they, you know, they'll talk to some dead dude who delivers, you know, the the word of God, and and they will, you know, buy it hook, line, and sinker. We're not about that. We're about experimenting. Okay, so the C say something. So what? Let's experiment. Let's find out. Let's do some research. 
And we've found some pretty remarkable things, you know, things about diet, things about dancing, movement, things about, uh, you know, exercise along with diet. Breathing. Breathing, breathing, very important, stimulating the vagus nerve. Uh, just so many great things. And so many people are being, you know, every day I get emails. And, these, you know, I'm not the one who always answers them. I do once in a while. But these guys read them, and all these people, you know, they write and they say, I read the wave, it changed my life. I read the wave, it changed my life. People saying, I started the diet. We've got people on the forum, which you probably read about, you know, who, who, who started the diet and have been, you know, relieved of an enormous number and variety of, of really unpleasant symptoms or problems, you know, and people are getting better. It takes, it can take a few years for a dietary change to kick in. You know, for your body to replace itself, because what I'm just talking about, you know, the DNA, uh, you know, we don't have that thing turned on that makes our whole body replace itself in 24 hours. But, you know, you, you go about this in a dedicated way, your body will change in a couple of years. Now, what about the people who haven't started, who aren't, who aren't doing anything at all? I mean, they're going to be, they're going to be in the lurch, I'm telling you. Well, I agree. Thank you very much for your uh, time. I appreciate the uh, the response. And uh, well, I guess thank- I'll take care of the air. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for the call. Thank Bye. you for calling, sweetie. Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to go to another one. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, this is Gary. I'm calling from uh, Tucson, Arizona. Hi, Hi Gary. Gary. Welcome to the show. Hi. Um, so I was wondering, in your course on knowledge and being, you talk about how uh, through your working with hypnotism, you've you've found these entities attached to people, mm-hmm. and so um, is there some conscious level, perhaps kind of like an exercise that someone can do to unattach those entities to your person? Uh, did you watch the entire set as far as they have been posted? I I don't think. I ha- did you see? Are you a member of the forum? Uh, no, I'm not. Okay, well, there are two additional videos that I mentioned a while ago mm-hmm. um, that I'm going to make public. For up, up until now, they've been mm-hmm. private for just uh, just our forum members, but I'm going to make mm-hmm. them public. And I really and I deal. I go a lot deeper into many things about that in these in these other videos. Yes, so uh, yeah, there is some. There are things you can do, and diet helps, mm-hmm. and. Uh, certain uh, exercises and basically finding out uh, what it doesn't like is kind of the thing because you know like I talk about the uh, the guy who had the attachment that wanted to drink alcohol and read the sports page well you know if you stop if you if you realize that this is probably not you that wants really wants to do this you just make the commitment to stop drinking alcohol stop drinking you know reading the sports page and maybe it'll go away um, there's more to it than that, and I talk about it in these other videos. And I've got a final one in that series that I'm going to do very soon and get it up as well. So, and I'm going to go into mm-hmm. some of these things more mm-hmm. deeply. So that'll be on yeah. the uh, that'll be on the Cassiopeia YouTube channel, just mm-hmm. for reference. Um, well, what if uh, if my particular entity actually wants me to not drink? Because I've always had a sort of lifelong aversion to drinking, so. Do I need to well, go then, on a drinking binge? No, no, just keep that lifelong aversion because <laughs> alcohol is not good for you anyway. Mm-hmm. 
but not for any kind of holiness reasons, but simply for physiological mm-hmm. reasons. It's really it's really detrimental to your body. So if you have mm-hmm. an aversion to it, I'd say that's a good thing. Stick with it. You can keep that one. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for your time. Well, I Thank so, you. Paul. Thanks, Gary. Bye. 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 Well, um, we have a few more questions uh, from the chat room. Should I just go through them quickly and you can give one-word answers? Uh, let's see if you can do that. Yes or no? Uh, based on your knowledge and experience, what would be your prediction regarding the possible events that may happen in the future of humanity for this year? For this year? Mm. Uh I think we've got a good chance for one or more um, Shelley Banks type events. I think we have uh, a really good chance for way more serious uh, weather problems, and I think we may have a very uh, slow start to summer if we have a summer at all. Um, Usually when things like this start happening, then the pathocrats start getting real antsy to try to, you know, to try to keep their position. So there could be another false flag just to uh, give a reason for an absolute imposition of martial law. Um, I think this year is going to be really interesting and probably getting around June, July. Um, it... Uh, you know, I mean, that's about as, as precise as I would want to be because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of things depend on choices. You get the information, and it's what I talked about in one of my videos, you know, that I, I I give you the information or I talk about something, and then that's giving you information. Then you change and take protective or defensive actions, or people change and take defensive actions, and then that, you know, kind of changes the reality a little bit. So let's see what happens. Let's kind of leave it up. Those are Those are some good possibilities. Well, there's a there's a question that's um, related to that, and it relates to something that's in the Cassiopeian sessions from 2009, where they said that it was five years. Uh, 2014, yeah, year zero, and they 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 were kind of joyful about it, if I remember correctly. But you know, when the, when the seas are joyful about something, it doesn't always mean that humanity's going to be happy about it. Mm. Um, yeah, learning is so, fun. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, what kind of probability though would you put to that time that I'd say, I'd say based on keeping your eye on the sky, so to speak, and, and, and your attention on reality, their uh, prediction is probably pretty good. 2014 is going to be real interesting. Year zero. It sounds a bit ominous. Yeah, and, and year zero could be the beginning of complete totalitarian rule, uh, which then brings on cometary destruction, or it could be the, you know, the cometary destruction that... Uh, brings all the mess that we've been going through up to now to an end. You know, we don't know. We have to wait and see on that, and we just have to keep our eyes on the reality, and that's kind of what we do on SOT. You know, we're constantly scoping, because we keep thinking that at some point, you know, there's going to be a news item, there's going to be an event somewhere on the planet that's going to give a signal to us, that's going to tell us, you know, what's what's up next, what's going to happen, you know, and we know that we won't get much warning in advance, but... You know, we keep we keep scoping and scanning. We're, we're news junkies because you know we want to know what's going on in the entire global reality as best we can, because that's the information that we need to be able to make choices. And when you see something coming, 
that's when you make a choice and that's when you take action, you know. Faith without works is dead. Um, I would like to ask Laura if she thinks enough individuals doing the work and developing an FTO, FRV is what is needed necessary to anchor the 4D ways. Well, I don't know if it's actually possible to uh, to uh, generate an STO FRV that is service to others frequency resonance vibration, um, but I think that if we do the best we can, which is going forward for truth and making choices based to the best of our ability on uh, serving others, and uh, I think that we'll be in the receivership position so that um, we could actually move into a different reality. Um, but yeah, I think doing doing that is is very very important, extremely important. The idea of anchoring the wave is um, it's maybe it's, it's yeah. misunderstood in the sense that oh, if this theorized wave happens anyway, and anchoring it is simply a function of what you were talking about previously. With well, there's another groups. there's another thing about it. You know, I mean, things are going to happen, and they're going to happen depending upon. Uh, who and what you are, who you are and what you see. And if, you know, if you are part of a network and if you are somebody who seeks the truth, even even if it hurts, and if you are connected to others who do that, and if you take action on the information that you have shared with those others, then the most important thing is making choices. And that this is what these two videos that I made recently are about precisely. So I hope that everybody will watch them and, you know, get some more clues. And and remember, I'm going to be making another one, too. And if more questions come along, then I'll probably, I mean, this will probably turn into the wave videos. Mm. I mean, there'll be, you know, there'll be video A or J13. (laughs) Uh, Maybe just a final one, because the others have really been answered already. Uh, Besides the Aerolis breathing and meditation program, what thoughts or feelings ground you when you are wrought with stress? Rot was, you know what, my family, my extended family, my dogs, the cat even, I'm not a cat person so much, but the cat even, (laughs) Uh, and sitting down to breakfast with my family is probably one of the highlights of my day. Uh, I'm easily amused, and if we get really down, you know, we may get out an old Miss Marple movie or, uh, you know, some kind of... Uh, some kind of thing and we sit down and we watch it together or you know sometimes we sing uh, but just being with my family and appreciating their smiles their eyes their voices um, you know their compassion that is what keeps me grounded that's what de-stresses me and you know I don't think there's anything better and and I just wish that other people had the good fortune that I have with my wonderful family. Okay, well, I think we've taxed Laura enough, we've picked her brains enough for tonight, and we've reached our two-hour limit anyway, unless you want to continue for another. I I, I think that my voice is about to go. It's about to go, yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been really good, yeah. Uh, I think we've dealt with a lot of topics in a very short period of time, relatively speaking. Uh, of course, people can uh, explore these topics in much greater detail via Laura's books. And once again, uh, there are three uh, books that are on special offer on Sat.net right now, uh, three Kindle books of Laura's. So check those out. 
Um, I would advise you to get hard copies because I, I have the feeling that there's gonna some things are gonna happen that are gonna wipe out electronics. Oh yeah, and if possible, you know. An overhead commentary. Well, I don't EMP. know, but you know, I'm I'm converting a lot of my my digital files to hard copy printing and putting in, a, in files. You know, it's uh, it's one of those uh, choices that I'm making based on information. Hmm. I know I want to have access to things. And you plan on publishing what two, maybe two more books this year? Oh uh, well, I don't know if I'm going to get. I, I'm working on. Oh jeez, yeah, I'm hoping for two this year. I'm I'm really working, and if and if everybody can just kind of pull together and give me some, uh, give me some some room for it, I will get it done, and then you will have a whole lot of answers about a whole lot of things. Good Lord willing. And the creek don't rise. Which already is, so yeah, watch this space. <laughs> don't count your chickens. Okay, folks, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to our callers. Thanks to our chatters. Uh, uh, and thanks to Laura, especially. Um, we will be back next week with an interview with uh, Patrick Rodriguez. Uh, yes, we'll be talking about spirit release therapy. Yeah. So good night. Check that one out. Uh, until then. Good night, all. Good night. Have a good one.